He's a Nazi. Charles Lindbergh is a hero. He has saved thousands of lives. He has brought peace and prosperity. He's let Adolf Hitler walk across Europe murdering thousands. Oh, you are a coward. And you're dragging everyone down with you. But not you, Evelyn. You're headed straight to the top. And they've taken you years to bang your way into this new role as a great man's soon-to-be wife. But now that you've made it, all the Nazis they want to parade through the White House are not going to ruin it for you, are they? Hello, welcome back to the Plot Against America podcast, part four. My name is Peter Sagal, the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And once again, I'm honored to be here with the show's creator and executive producer, Mr. David Simon. Thank you for having me again. This is, of course, the companion episode to part four of the limited series, The Plot Against America. So if you haven't watched part four, what are you doing listening to this? Stop. Go watch it. Come back. We'll have a lot of information for you that will only make sense after you've watched it. In this episode, Alvin struggles with life after losing his leg in the war. Sandy falls deeper under the sway of the Lindbergh movement. An FBI agent starts creating problems for the Levin family, and an actual Nazi appears on screen at the White House. So one thing we should say at the beginning is that this and the next three episodes have a different director than the first three episodes. Right. Minky Spiro directed the first three, Tommy Schlamy the last three. They worked separately, of course, but they worked in concert with each other. There was a lot of communication early on, some agreed-upon sensibilities of how the camera should work, of pacing the storytelling. Obviously, the first group director, Minky, had more responsibility for the construction of the set. Basically, she's creating the world. But you would see this real effort to try to get notes from, you know, what do you think about the callbacks and who do you think is the best choice we have for this role? And you want to keep those lines of communication open Mm -hmm. because you don't want to have three episodes feel like one show and three episodes feel like another. It's a tricky thing to do. The reason not to have one director is you want to pull one off of set and have them start editing or you're not going to make your, you know, you're going to run out of time. Right. Both are Jewish. Tommy Schlamy, he was a quarterback. He's a very uh, athletic Texan Jew. And uh, we were in the gym at Wequaic High School. Where the kids in the, in the show go and, and we're, Philip and we're Roth Philip, attended. The real Philip Roth attended. We're in the gym. And for whatever reason, Tommy was holding a football. And from the opposite foul line, he looked over at the basket. Not the basket close to him, but the basket on right. the other side of a full court. And he said, I'm putting this one through the hoop. And I said... No shot. That doesn't happen. He threw it through the net. And I said, are you kidding me? Will you do that again? He goes, no. (laughs) (laughs) But but he did do it. I mean, I saw it happen. If ever there was a moment where Philip Roth had to be like looking down on this production and going, yeah, I'm going to let this happen. (laughs) You know, the crew who saw it, I said, that's my director. That's why we picked him for that reason. Was there any consciousness of like saying, okay, the next three episodes, the final three are going to be different in tone and we need to sort of move towards that in terms of the design of the direction? The piece gets darker in the last three episodes. The fascism is ratcheting up. You know, it's it's starting to become darker, less of a parlor drama. Characters are going off to places that are um, a little more historical and a little less familial. It's feeling different. And, and, And I think Tommy captured that, but you're hoping it feels like the same movie throughout. Dina Goldman, the production designer for episodes four and onward, uh, had some thoughts about what she wanted to do to bring that aspect of it out. 
The main difference I feel between what was going on in the first half and what was going on in the second half is that these episodes needed to have a more claustrophobic, a, a darker feeling. This is when all the world is starting to close in around our family. One way that we tried to illustrate the darker, more oppressive quality of the second half is to just add more roadblocks and things in strange places that you could trip over. But let's start talking about this episode in particular. We start with Mrs. Finkel's funeral. Bess and Evelyn's mother has died. They're back in the cemetery where we saw them scrubbing the swastikas. You added the character of the mother to the show. She's not in the book. Yeah. It helps to have this elegy for that generation that actually did the hard work of getting on the boats, coming here, becoming Americans in that first generation. As we remember the life of Dora Finkel, it is meaningful, I think, to admire the great journey that she represents in beginning her life in a Russian shtetl, coming to this new country as a young girl and making a life for herself and her family in a new land. Our parents are the generation that risked all to make us Americans. And we are indeed now Americans. It highlights the fact that this is a story about people who have assimilated. And highlighting those that actually struggled with that puts them in real relief. You're looking at the next generation of Levins who are standing there being as American as, you know, this is the generation that's discussing the Yankee ball score. During, uh, during Shabbat dur- dinner. During Shabbat dinner, right in between the mozi. So I thought this was a nice way to put that to bed and also to give a neutral rabbi a chance to speak to the fundamental affront of what Bengelsdorf has been selling, which is, you know, we're not American enough yet, but this will help us become more American. And he's basically looking at him and saying, we are Americans. Let's talk about Herman and Alvin. Herman's trip up to see Alvin in Canada, it's only briefly mentioned in the book. So why did you decide to make that into a whole sequence? The idea of Touching on Alvin's alienation even before he gets off the train seemed to help with his arc. And I love the idea of Herman on the way back and he sees this caravan of Jews leaving the country where he is effectively recommitting to the idea of nobody's running me off of my own country. And and he's just tried to convince Alvin to come back. And of course, Alvin is going to be persona non grata in America for having violated the neutrality laws. So it put Herman in stark relief, I thought, to have... All the Jews going the other way to Canada. The Jews who look more than Herman and the Levins like Jews. Right. They have the hats. They have the beards. They're clearly Jews, and they're clearly getting out. In the backseat of one of those cars, I had them stack volumes of the Talmud. Really? Yeah. And, like, stack them up. Like, people can barely look out the back windows. You glimpse it for maybe a microsecond as it goes by. I had the props department hunting down period-correct Talmud ensembles. Then I watched the dailies. I'm like... Yeah, yeah, don't listen to the producer. You know, <laughs> don't. That's He got a little excited. It yeah. happens. Hey, while we're talking about it, tell me something about your writing process. Was there anything in the writing of this and the adaptation that surprised you that you discovered? Sympathy for a character or a character? Oh, yeah. As you had to expand the point of view of Alvin, Evelyn, and Bengelsdorf, you realize that being even hideously wrong in moments does not absolve anyone of their humanity. And it makes it more interesting to see their frailty and their hunger and even the um, desperation that leads somebody to make a bad decision. The verdict on Alvin in the book is 
he was never any good. Yeah. Well, he might have been, but his injury destroys right. him. Right. He goes down a road that is, there's nothing redeeming about him. You made a different choice with Alvin, and you start yeah. to see it in this episode. And where did that come from? Is that because you, you had a place where you wanted them to go, or you just saw Alvin as a more, I don't know, noble guy? I would have loved to have talked about this with Roth, because I think Roth was giving us the unreliable narrator in making it 10-year-old Philip's verdict. I think the verdict is more mixed. The importance of the guy who's on the furthest part of the spectrum in terms of standing up to fascism, who's willing to risk all, the idea of having him be a complete wastrel and son of a bitch seemed to me to be unbalanced. I can accept all of Alvin's flaws and write them, but it seemed to me that somewhere in the core of Alvin, there's something there that has to be acknowledged, which is, you know, he put on the uniform and he went, and that has to be accepted. Once I granted Alvin that, then I was no longer willing to accept 10-year-old Philip's verdict, and then I could do anything with Alvin that a conflicted person like that, yeah, he could be angry, he could be self-destructive, he could screw up, but he also had to have a, a little bit of a righteous fury because yeah. it's in evidence. And the, the nurse in the hospital when Herman goes to visit says they're all angry, but nobody like him. Yeah. And that seems to propel him. He went to war. It didn't work out the way that he thought it was going to work out, but he still in this version seems glad he went and still seems the same guy. He hasn't been chastened. Right. Yeah. Now, I think in some ways he's looking for a way to do better than he did. He failed as a soldier in some basic ways. How does the grossest scene in this otherwise uh, fairly palatable limited series <laughs> in which Alvin tries to empty his own bedpan and screws up and ends up with, I think we can say this, shit all over him. I noticed a couple things about that. He doesn't ask for help. Right. He gets up. He's right. just going to do it. He's, he's like, oh, the wheelchair's over there. Final hop. Right. And there's that moment of humiliation. Were you like planting something there that was going to come out later in Alvin? There was a metaphor of Alvin is covered in shit and it's effectively where his soul is at. We don't know everything about how he screwed up at that point on, on the mission, but he is literally and figuratively covered in shit yeah. in his own sense of himself. But I remember in the film Coming Home, there was a moment where John Voight is on a gurney in a veteran's hospital, and he's incapacitated. And I think Jane Fonda bumps into the gurney, a bag of, of urine splashes on her. And Voight is so humiliated, so embarrassed at his reduced status, and so wants to be anywhere else. I never forgot the scene. And when it came to trying to access how furious somebody like Alvin would be at his own helplessness, the idea that he wouldn't let a nurse touch his bedpan and he would try himself to empty it, it came out of that. Let's leave Alvin <laughs> lying there covered in shit for the <laughs> moment. And we'll go back to Newark. Herman is still not giving in. Herman has a conversation with his brother, Monty, the produce guy, in which Herman says something to Monty that really echoed where we are right now. A goddamn invalid for the rest of his life. Over what? Over what? Alvin can't bear your Nazi-loving president. That's why he left. You know, not so long ago, you couldn't bear the man either, but now what? Stock market is up, profits are up, business is booming. Everything else about Lindbergh, what he stands for, is forgotten. What else matters to you, a businessman, if the money is right? Boy, you know, you sound just like the stupid kid. What else matters? Do your boys matter? What's interesting about that is it's easy to side with Herman because Herman, as we know, is, I guess, historically in the right. In real life, we had to go fight the war. But Monty's got a point. You want your sons dead? Is that what you want? There's something to be said from Monty's point of view. Why risk your children for your principles? 
You're right. And in some very basic way, Monty has landed on the two-sentence campaign promise that got Lindbergh elected, which right. is, it's a choice between me and war. And peace is its own powerful argument. It was an argument for Neville Chamberlain in the run-up to World War II, and it's, it was an argument for Lindbergh and for Taft and the other Republicans who were isolationists. It's an argument that is incredibly resonant if the, if the war seems to be a war of choice. And I guess to Americans, until Pearl Harbor, this seemed to be a war of choice. What we know historically is that Hitler had to be stopped. He was reducing Europe to an abattoir. But we only know that in retrospect. It's entirely plausible to agree with Monty. At the same time, I do think Herman is piercing him with something honest, which is as long as your business is fine, as long as nobody's actually poking you in the ribs, you'll look the other way as governing norms collapse, as we descend towards totalitarian impulses. It's amazing what the Tao will do to, to somebody's conscience. Let's talk about the rest of the Levin family. Sandy, as we know, is back from Kentucky. He's eating pork. Pork is good. He's very happy. He's Where? not wrong about pork. He's not wrong about pork. I think we're having lunch later, and we will be, in fact, eating some pork. <laughs> but moving right along, <laughs> he seems so happy, Sandy. He loves being the center of attention. He loved his experience. He's grown in confidence yep. as a 15-year-old would. He may be, out of all the characters, because he's 15, you can understand why he's doing. There's no real compromise for him. It was fun accessing that rebellion, that father-son rebellion. And it stands in such relief to Philip, who just wants to be sheltered and adored and, and be adoring. Meanwhile, however enthusiastic Sandy is about joining this movement, Evelyn and her, at this point, fiancé, uh, Lionel Bengelsdorf, are even more enthusiastic. There's that essential and difficult dinner they have together. And it has, to me, one of the most central exchanges of the entire series. It's what Bengelsdorf says in response to Herman's accusations about Lindbergh and how terrible Lindbergh is. Everywhere he goes, Hitler beats down and shoots the Jews. There may be a time when he comes here, to America, to beat down and shoot us. And what will our president do then? Defend us? Or have he and Herr Hitler reached another understanding? I was at the White House talking to the president just yesterday morning. Access. Right. I mean, it is literally a power move. It's like, yes, you may think all this, but I have power. I'm talking to the president. I can reassure you that I can see into the man's soul. Yeah. And And it's fine. The way that he says at the end of that exchange, have I begun to allay your concerns? It's weirdly kind, but extraordinarily condescending. Like you, you who do not hang out with President Lindbergh like I do. I was over at the White House the other day. Yeah, exactly. It has that absolute tone of... If you knew what I knew of expertise. There's also that conversation about Jews in the Confederacy. I found out that John Turturro actually went down to Charleston to meet with the Jews down there and find out what the Southern Jews were like. He's playing one, and it turns out they told him. and said, oh, did you know that Judah Benjamin was the vice president of the Confederacy? We're so proud. That highlights that German-Jewish-Eastern European-Jewish divide, which was profound and, and was probably at its height in the first part of the 20th century. Right. The rabbi is getting into it, and not in a good way, as we introduce uh, his new plan, the Homestead Act, which is a relocation plan into the interior. There are extraordinarily sinister echoes of both the relocation of Japanese Americans on the West Coast and also, what did the Nazis call it? Resettlement, they called it. 
what is the most fundamental affront that you can imagine in, in a republic is the idea that you, don't, you no longer have a fundamental liberty over where you decide to live. It's so basic. And of course, it's masked by the fact that, oh, we're just going to move the jobs. If you don't want the jobs, you don't have to move. Right. But if you want to keep your job, we're going to get these companies that have national reach to send you where we want to send you. And of course, the subtext, if you're the Lindbergh administration, is that the Jews as a voting block will disappear. You're basically burying them in states where they will have little impact. They will no longer carry elections in New Jersey or New York or anywhere like that. And uh, you've marginalized them as a community. It's also a way of appropriating their wealth, which is what happened to the Japanese in the West Coast. They right. came back to discover that their farms, their homes weren't theirs anymore. Right. If everybody in, in the Jewish section of Newark has to sell their homes in the same fiscal quarter, the price of real estate is going to dive. They're not going to get as much. People are going to be able to speculate on it and make money. This is where I pull up and I say, what in the world is Bengelsdorf doing? How can he, I mean, all right, fine, just folks. It's creepy, but it's just kids going to the country. Sandy had a great time. I probably would have had a great time. This is different. And it seems to be his idea, which is even creepier. He's not collaborating. He's actually persecuting. I think in some respect, there's an aspect of self-loathing. He really is trying to get rid of the hyphenate in Jewish American. And there's something a little bit tragic about that. It's set against this whole generation that you see becoming Americans without having to do all that. Having to do all that. You know, they become Americans because they say they're Americans, like every immigrant group gets to do. Everybody gets there. They can come not knowing the language. They can come looking different, worshiping in a different way. Their politics can be at any point in the spectrum. They all eventually become American. Yeah. And he is on this righteous campaign to do what needs no doing. And I think he genuinely believes that it's more complicated. He's obviously telling himself something, but we have to talk about what he tells himself when he reacts to Anne-Marie Lindbergh's invitation to please represent the American Jewish community at the state dinner for von Ribbentrop. Well, to me, when I read the book and I realized he's going to a dinner for von Ribbentrop, for the yeah. German foreign minister. At that point, I'm like, how could he do... Homestead 42 is easy. Yeah. You know, oh, I'll get them all raises. You know, they'll all get, they'll get a stipend for moving. Right. They're gonna, their money's going to go further in Kentucky. Like, you can rationalize all that. How do you rationalize shaking hands with Hitler's foreign minister while Hitler is the sworn enemy of your people right. and is, is butchering Europe everywhere he turns? Okay. How do you justify that, David Simon? Well, Roth wrote it to the point of credibility. When I read it in the book, I believe that somebody had such a a Rumkowski-like moment that they allowed themselves to believe that this was better, that this was somehow allowing an American foreign policy goal to be met and to demonstrate to the Nazis on the other end, I'm Jewish, I'm part of this. Right. Anne-Marie Lindbergh kind of pitches it that way. She says, says, I I want to make sure, I want to send a gesture that we are not like them, that we have Jews. We have no Nuremberg laws. Here are the Jews. Here are our Jews. They're at this state dinner. They're part of our administration. Get it? Like like as if they're they're teaching von Ribbentrop. Like as if this is a teachable moment for the Nazi party of Germany. It's not collaboration. It's not accommodation. It's subtle resistance. and, And the bottom line is if you want to be the guy who wears a tuxedo, and goes to the state dinner and stands off the president's elbow yeah. and is the court Jew, then you'll buy this. Yeah. And, and what she says is, I want you to represent your community, right. which instantly makes them the most important Jews in America. Right. And it, who it, could resist that? Evelyn seems, obviously, we've talked about how much Bengelsdorf has changed her life in a way that she needed and appreciated. 
she seems both more eager to go along with the machinery of this and also less ideologically committed. This to her is something that gives her a great sense of importance and joy. You know, she gets to go to this fabulous, she, she can't understand the why jewelry her minute, matters. The jewelry her. matters, yeah. The jewelry matters It's All those lovely things mean a lot to her. Yeah, it's, it's, what, it's the life she didn't think she was going to get. And I think there's some real subtext with her affections for Sandy and her desire to co-opt Sandy and include him in this journey that yeah. she's having. She thinks she's doing Sandy wonderful favors by right. getting him in the program, by making him famous. But what she's also doing is, is playing a mother role, yeah. um, which has been denied to her and co-opting it from Bess. Yeah, which leads to Bess turning on Evelyn. Yeah. It, she senses Inevitably. That. Yeah, and, and there's a moment where, you know, Anne-Marie Lindbergh is pitching well, would you be willing to come to this dinner and represent and so on and so forth? And her first question is, can I bring my nephew? Can I bring right. Sandy? Right. She's San- so excited about Sandy that. Sandy is the human jewelry of the life that she's constructing around herself. You know, Evelyn's weakness in the book is, as a person is fairly definitive. And I don't think you want to walk away from that. When a writer's portrayal makes it tragic and painful in an exquisite way. I feel like Winona took special delight in playing what she understood to be a weak woman, somebody who inside... There's a hole in her that she's trying to fill with all the wrong things. Evelyn does have her moment of strength or rebellion when they meet yet another real historical character, Henry Ford. Do people still know this, that Henry Ford was the most vicious, prominent anti-Semite in American history, that Hitler actually was inspired? He was as much a Jew hater as Hitler ever was. As we found out, being a captain of industry, whether you are the greatest manufacturer of automobiles or whether or not you are the greatest advocate of American aviation, in the case of Lindbergh, or whether or not you are a real estate magnate and casino owner, these things do not convey actual political intelligence or, 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 virtue. or virtue. Thinking about human relations and thinking about mature forms of self-governance and pluralism and all these other complicated things that, upon which the republic rests, that requires a different kind of education. And it's not economic and it's not business and it's not finance. But these guys made a lot of money. And then they decided that they were wise. Yeah, because, because I've got so much money. Yeah, how look, look how, how much can money, I be? Look at how big my wallet is. How yeah. could I not be brilliant? Yeah. And Ford was the prime example. Yeah. So, yeah, she she meets Ford. At the state dinner. It is a funny moment where, where Bengals are saying, well, let's go talk to the president. And the president just sort of wanders away. Says, oh, well, maybe we'll talk to him later. later. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that'll happen. And they end up with Henry Ford. Yeah. Uh, again, fine casting. That guy seemed quite sincere. And he says something vicious and racist, which we cannot repeat here, to which Evelyn has a great response, which is... David Simon, what does it mean? Go shit in the ocean. Yeah, you go. It means it means go fuck yourself yes. in the vernacular, but it's but it literally it's go shit in the ocean. Yes. And she says it to Henry Ford. It's a fabulous moment. Yeah. Was that Winona's contribution or yours? That was the price of getting Winona to take the role. Really? How so? Let's just say that Winona Ryder stood down and Winona Horowitz, yes. uh, her given name, came forward and she said to me, if I can only say gay cock and off and yam in the piece, my career will be complete. I just right. want to say that on screen one time. <laughs> it, all she ever wanted. Yeah. It, she, I mean, she was kidding, obviously. Yes, but, but, I'm sure but she was, tried she, to get that into Beatles. This, this was when we, right. Yeah. It was, it's been tough. It was tough to get that into Edward Scissors. Exactly. Who knew? Um, but, <laughs> but she, you know, we, we were talking on the phone about, can you possibly do this role? Because she had Stranger Things. She had other commitments. And that was her singular term was, yes. is this line of dialogue in there? 
I made sure to write our way to that line. And I, it, then when I figured out a way to deliver it to Henry Ford, it was... Yeah, who better? <laughs> um, Sandy is very, very upset that he didn't get to go. And that comes out in one of the harshest scenes so far. I'll never forgive you for this. But you will. One day you will understand that what your father wants for you is actually what's for the best. I let my aunt down. She's the one who's let us down, Sandy. She's part of something dangerous and ugly. That's not true. That's bullshit. Stop it. Stop that talk right now. You're ghetto Jews. Narrow-minded ghetto Jews. Don't mimic your stupid aunt. Don't ever talk back like that ever again. You're a dictator. You're worse than Hitler. That was tough. Where is that coming from? I mean, it's angry. That's in the book, and it's coming from Roth. And I have to think that in some basic way, Roth is very aware of the push and pull in Jewish identity between allegiance and individuality, which is to say part of assimilation is that realization that you can, in fact, be a citizen of the world. That if this is your country and if you're an American, you do not always have to stand in lockstep with your co-religionists. There are moments where you can say, I don't agree. And there's another thing going on, too. I'm sure you have this experience of knowing people who are first generations of other kinds of immigrants. For example, a friend of mine is a first-generation American who was born to Vietnamese parents. Right. And one of the things you see is they get fed up with how their parents are still married to the old country. Like my Vietnamese friend, her mother's constantly sending her food because she doesn't believe that you can get good food out of their community in Sacramento. Right. And sometimes that comes out as delight and, oh, they're funny. Sometimes it comes out as annoyance and sometimes it comes out as rage. Why can't you leave the old country? We're in America now. Yeah. We've talked about Sandy. But Philip also was kind of fascinated with this because the episode ends with Philip going to the newsreel, the movie theater to see newsreels, just so he can see the images of his aunt dancing at the White House, mm-hmm. you know? So th- even for Philip, there's something exciting. and The, the, the awe of Evelyn Finkel uh, of Elizabeth, New Jersey, who grew up in, you know, in, uh, above their parents' store, dancing at the White House in a ball gown with the president in the room and being on the newsreels. It's, it's astounding. Do you think Philip at this point, do you think he has any understanding of what's really happening at this point? Or is he still just reacting to things as a child would? I think in some ways, the great value of Philip in the piece is that his childhood is what's being affronted at all points. I think he's starting to perceive, he certainly perceives the fault lines in his family and how fraught this Lindbergh argument is between Sandy and, and Herman. But I think at the same time, he's experiencing some of what he believes is true to his older brother and some of what his father insists is true. And he's experiencing both things. Yeah. The episode ends with Herman and Philip outside the theater and the slap that doesn't happen. In the book, it does. Uh, yeah. in, in your version, he literally holds back. He doesn't do it. It was such a key moment. I'm wondering what your thought process was about that. Why didn't Herman slap Philip as he does in the book? Earlier in the book and in our show, Bess slaps the bejesus out of uh, a Sandy. Right. When I wrote the slap of Philip uh, outside the movie theater, I realized we'd stolen all the thunder. Once... Bess, the loving matriarch in this family, once she has to slap her oldest son across the face, we've spent that emotion. The only interesting thing was to take Herman, who is this ball of anger, who can barely cease to have an argument and barely cease to insist upon his rightful stance about everything, to have him so frustrated by by Philip that he raises his hand, sees Philip's fear, and pauses 
was a much more interesting moment. Once we saw it on the page, we realized it's way more interesting if Herman, of all people, has this moment of recognition of, yeah. of, of, of his own totalitarian impulse. Yeah, it's also utterly terrifying. Morgan Spector is like 6'2". He's a very powerful guy, the actor playing Herman. And to see him slap uh, Eji, the actor playing Philip, would have been truly horrible. It would have been hard to redeem him after he does that to his own yeah. son. We arrive at the final line of that episode after the slap that doesn't happen where Herman says to his son, this is not a game, which is resonant because if there's anything that we've learned in the course of this particular episode is no, this is not a game. This is not politics. This is not a discussion with your friends or even an argument. This is America changing. And I have a particular contempt for what our politics has become. And that line felt like it needed to end the episode because I think it speaks to our current moment, which mm -hmm. is... We're in the middle of an election cycle again, and you can you can literally see the issues that actually face America being shaved away from the whole dynamic by which we're going to choose our next leader. Yeah. And as you say, this, I mean, even though we all tend to think about it as like, well, you know, like sports, our team versus their team. We're great. They're terrible. Can we win? Who's our best player? You forget what actually is at stake. Right. And, and what is at stake is people's lives. Right. David Simon, thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back next week, of course, to discuss part five of The Plot Against America. Spoiler, things get more tense. That episode, part five, will air next Monday, 9 p.m. Eastern on HBO. I'm Peter Sagal. You can hear me in the meantime if you miss me on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our team at Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. This episode's lead producer is Emmanuel Hapsis. Our associate producer is Alexis Moore, post-production and mixing by Elliot Adler, and our editor is Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. You can always listen to this podcast and all the prior episodes. You can review it and rate it via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, the HBO apps, and anywhere else you might find your podcasts and draw them down from the ether. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much.